I mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting in Work, episode 146 of 8 Bits Interview Podcast, powered by Audio Technica and Manscaped. I'm your host, John O'Peck, and joining me this week, we have Joe Mirabello for the first interview of 2021. Joe is the creative director over at Terrible Posture, a game studio that has most recently put out a very innovative project. It's called 3 Out of 10. It's an irreverent, satirical send-up of the video game industry. But what's cool about it is it's presented as like a playable sitcom. So while it is a video game, it's also paced like a TV series, like an animated series. It's got mini games and dialogue that sometimes come across like you are playing a game. But for the most part, if you're just watching it, it kind of just feels like you're checking out a new TV show. It's free on the Epic Game Store at the moment. More than four and a half million people have downloaded it, or at least one episode. Talking to Joe was pretty cool because he has this long history in video games. He's worked for a, a wide range of studios from big ones to small ones. Titan Quest is a game he worked on. The Kingdoms of Amalur MMO, I think, that didn't quite get off the ground, but was in that same world as Kingdom of Amalur, which is a really great game back on the PS3. As an indie, he worked on Tower of Guns and Mother Gunship in quite a significant role. And now, of course, the 3 out of 10 being the creative director, he's had a hand in a lot of the game from the writing and some of the concept arts and just kind of controlling the development and production. I really enjoyed this chat with Joe and hearing how his journey into games started at a really young age with, you know, choose your own adventure books and his passion for art and all things creative that just kind of led him into discovering that, you know, you could make a career out of games and over time picking up skills in programming and coding to the point where he's a jack of all trades and can really bring so much to a development studio like he has in the past few projects he's been part of. On top of that, it's quite cool to see how that partnership with Epic Games really came together as a, a development partner in 3 out of 10. And I think whether you're an indie or just someone that wants to get into bringing your creative projects to life, I think Joey really has a lot of great advice for people trying to make things happen. So without further ado, here is Joe Mirabello from Terrible Posture. Enjoy the show. Joe, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, the first of 2021 for me anyway. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting a little bit. Yeah, so uh, I guess we can get straight into it and we probably should start with your background that leads to what you're here to talk about, which is the, the animated series, but you've got a, develop, a strong video game development background that's led you into this new project that's, that's pretty different, but I'm guessing it's very much founded in what you've done up to this point. Well, it certainly is founded in, in a lot of the skills I've picked up along the way. Uh, the project, mm. real quick, is, is 3 out of 10. It's a playable sitcom. Um, it's The entire thing is uh, uh, like you're playing through an actual cartoon episode by episode, only there's lots of like, little mini-games mixed into these interesting antics that uh, happen in the show. And it shows about uh, the world's worst video game studio, where they're trying to mm. make a game that scores better than 3 out of 10, and they've never been able to. So it's a lot of silly day-to-day -day office antics mixed in with some really fantastical stuff. Um, I got my start uh, about 15 years ago now. Uh, actually, pretty much exactly. Like, hold on. It's January 1st here. So January 5th, 2005, uh, 2005 was when I started. Okay. So Because it was like pretty much first of the year um, at a company called Iron Lore Entertainment. Uh, they made a game called Titan Quest, and I worked on that. Um, 
and then I went into the MMO space and I worked on MMOs for a long time. Um, and uh, I was working for a company uh, named 38 Studios that uh, in 2012 went bankrupt. And I was working as an artist and gradually I was getting more and more technical um, throughout my career and becoming almost technical to the point where I could make a game on my own. Not necessarily that it would be uh, a good game, but it would be something I could do without the uh, leaning on engineers or other designers mm -hmm. or other artists. Um, and so when 38 Studios collapsed, we were starting to see the beginning, or I should say the rise of the indie sphere um, in game space. Uh, so I decided I would go and try, try and make my own thing. And that was Tower of Guns. And I thought mm -hmm. I was going to be taking like a sabbatical from AAA games and like, okay, I'll make this weird, zany first-person shooter called Tower of Guns, and then I'll go back to working for somebody else. I just wanted to do something that was like a palate cleanser for a year, kind of take a sabbatical. And instead, it became a career. Uh, I went from Tower of Guns to working on a game called Mother Gunship, where I was directing a team of uh, developers all over the world, working with a company named Grip Digital. And then mm. uh, from Mother Gunship, we started working on uh, 3 out of 10. Um, and uh, the company now, Terrible Posture Games is my company. We went from being just me for Tower of Guns all the way up to now we're at like, you know, a dozen, 15 people, depending on uh, how you count part-time people and such. Um, but yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's been an exciting ride. And uh, 3 out of 10 is in particular a really kind of a, a culmination of a lot of the different antics I've seen throughout my career. I'm making fun of mm -hmm. a lot of tropes in games, a lot of tropes in game development, a lot of different things that you see in any creative industry or any office industry. Um, and I lean hard into that. But at the same time, I make sure that it's really ridiculous. So even mm. though I'm making fun of a lot of this stuff, um, and even though we're really poking poking fun at the game industry, we're doing it in a very affectionate way. This project is really a love letter to game development. And um, sure. it ends up being kind of this unique, um, utterly unique kind of project that I haven't seen done before where you're mixing games and cartoon. And uh, it's available free right now on the Epic Game Store. You can play all the episodes actually for absolutely free. That's cool. And you can even watch them on YouTube if you prefer to <laughs> do that. <laughs> you can, but then you miss out on all the fun exploration stuff yeah. and all the, 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 the surprises. And uh, it, the gameplay themselves are pretty ridiculous, the little gameplay mm. elements. Very cool. So we'll get a bit more into that specific project in a bit. But I want to talk a little bit more about that uh, origin story that you just kind of took us through. So sure. what was it that got you into games to begin with? Oh, dude, that's a good question. Every time somebody asks me that, I say something different because I think it's no one thing. Uh, yeah. Like, I mean, I was writing my own little choose your own adventures when I was eight because I loved choose your own adventures. They were so much fun that I'd be like, I'm going to make my own. And I'd have like, you know, those uh, survival bound notebooks filled with these random pick your path kind of stories. Uh, and then I started messing with QBasic when I was 10 or 11, doing the same thing, making choose your own adventures. I couldn't understand how to do any logic, but I could understand how to do this or that so it was just mm. choose your own adventures in code and i went from that even even though this was let's see how old was i maybe 10 11 12 13 i was getting to the point where i started to want to mess with other games so i was make, messing with any game i could get my hands on that had a level editor i just loved making stuff so i'd make you know my own little maps and world and uh warcraft 3 or no sorry warcraft 2 in those days because i had its own map editor um there was a, a game called dark forces that i loved a star wars first person shooter and i would make my own levels for that um, never published anything to the web because I, they were terrible and I never actually finished any of them, but I was learning and I was experimenting. Yeah. And that was the important thing is I was really making stuff. And this was maybe 1995, 1996. And, uh, I had no idea you could do this for a career, like at all. And you, like, in order to be a person who made games, you needed to know how to code. 
And mm. uh, it wasn't until I got into college and I discovered it was probably conceptart.org. Uh, and I discovered that there was all these artists who worked on games. Uh, actually, there had been Polycount before then, um, yeah. uh, which is a game art forum that uh, has been around. Back then, it was like Planet Quake or something like that. But um, when I saw people just doing art, they weren't even making modding any of the behaviors of the games. They were just changing out the models and the textures. And those people were all getting hired because there was nobody who knew how to do this. They were all teaching themselves. Uh, right. That was when it dawned on me that this is a career, and this is potentially something I could do. I thought... In 1997, 1998, I thought I'd spend my entire career making CD covers, and that would make me happy because that was creative. Like, I'll make CD covers. Right. That'll be fun. <laughs> and now there's, like, no... No, I know. <laughs> I know <laughs> now like... There's no CDs, but, like, like... there's not... I, I would... It's, it's actually a shame because I used to be, like, obsessed with cover art and, like, that, like Storm Thorgerson was a guy who I studied in, in high school for, a, like, a project, and he's famously designed the Pink Floyd covers and Audio Slave and... A bunch of these like really epic like uh crazy practical things that look like they'd be digital but he actually made them in in real life those are cool yes such a like google him if you're interested at all storm thorgerson just a, a crazy visual artist but um it, it's strange that i could do that in 2005 when i was in high school because now i feel like it's it's um i guess the art's there on your phone or in itunes but it's not quite the same as like yeah. i used to put i used to put the um take the booklets out of the CD and like put them on the wall. Like I'd blue tack them against the wall and have all my, you know, favorite albums up there. But it's uh, it's kind of a lost art in it, some sense. It is. And I mean, back in those days, like you associated the music with that album art. Um, it yeah. was like, that was what you, that was like, you almost could hear the music when you saw the art. You're like, oh yes, this has become such an ingrained association in my mind. Um, and at the time I wasn't really very good at painting. But I was like, somebody's going to need to lay out these things. And I could be a layout designer. That seems really fun. And those people still exist. Plenty of people are still doing layout all over the place. Um, maybe just not CD covers anymore. Um, so I kind of had the right thinking, at least, that there was something for a career in design. Mm. Um, but uh, graphic design, not game design. But it was really discovering these art forums and the modding scene that kind of pushed me over to the edge and being like, no, no, wait, hold on. You, you enjoy making games. You enjoy having a dialogue with a player and i always have that's that, cool that like kind of like pushed me into this direction so you'd always had an interest in art creatively so to speak oh yeah i mean i'm, I'm interested in everything man i would make my own comics as a kid too <laughs> i would make my own write my own stories like my own novels make my own comics uh and these things are pretty terrible i wouldn't share them with anyone at the same time though <laughs> I, i've strongly adhered to the theory of if you want to get decent at something do a lot of terrible versions of the thing that you want to be good at and you know the thousand pots theory by the time you get to building your 1000th pot it'll be a good piece of pottery um so you do that rather than trying to make a pristine pot the first time sure. um and so like i consider all that stuff i did as a kid all practice for what i do now which is still practice for what i'll be doing tomorrow but uh but yeah i mean i kind of see them all intertwined whether or not i'm engineering doing code work which i, I do a decent amount of now or I, I did at least back when I was working on Tower Guns. Now I mostly lead a team. But um, whether or not it's code or di graphic design or visual design or mm. gameplay design or writing, they all kind of blend together for me, and they're all one thing, and that's just the act of creation. And um, I enjoy that. That's what makes me feel fulfilled in life. Very cool. So what, at what point did you pick up the, the extra skills you talked about with coding and being able to do 
the other type of technical work that goes into games because I'm, I'm guessing most artists that you know they just want to do art and that's what's interesting and you know if you if you're if you're messing around with coding then you're that means that you're not practicing your creative uh skills so you i can see that people wouldn't be that tempted to to do everything unless they do want to become someone that can make a game on their own <laughs> well right and i think that there is something to be said for the specialist who gets really good and owns what they're doing i'm yeah. spread pretty thin and i'm too interested in too many <laughs> things to ever call myself an expert um which you know that that part the 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 that old saying is true you know mm. if you you'll never become the master of any one thing if you play with a lot of things or mess with a lot of things but like um i think that for me uh i've i enjoyed challenging myself but also more so i just wanted to do something and mm. i wanted to figure out how to and so i didn't learn how to do a lot of code i just started with one thing and then that one thing bled into being another thing and another thing ended up you know i just expanded outward and all of a sudden i looked at what i had in my hands and what I had made, and I realized that this was a full game. And I had learned quite a bit. Um, I don't call myself uh, any kind of, of engineer. I can call myself a scripter, but not really an engineer. Um, mm. But um, I feel like like these days, especially with tools like Unreal 4, which is pretty powerful uh, of an engine, they blur the lines really... It gets really blurry when you're talking about the lines between effects or their art or their um engineering pipelines they're they're kind of all mished together and you kind of almost accidentally become um one of them uh, sorry mm. you almost accidentally kind of will shift from one to the other depending on what you right. need um i started like getting more and more technical back at 38 when i was becoming a technical artist those are the people who will tend to like make shaders or will set up terrain systems or will work with the engineers and even though i wasn't doing engineering work 10 years ago, the stuff it was doing would be considered engineer work. But now it was put into the hands of artists because it had been friendly enough. They just needed to be technical artists. And that's almost like a gateway drug into being an engineer. Um, so I started walking down that path of, of code. Um, it doesn't need to be scary, though. These days, the lines are so blurry that you will, if you just mm. start messing with game art enough, you will accidentally be picking up little bits and pieces from the other disciplines. Maybe never really learning them full out or being good at them. But yeah. the exposure's there. The cross exposure's there. Very cool. Okay. And before we move on again, I, I just want to ask about Kingdoms of Amalur. You worked on that game, is that right? Uh, I worked on the MMO version. Uh, I guess I technically right. did a little okay. bit of stuff on the action RPG. Not really anything to say that I I worked on the game, but I did go okay. and uh, I worked on some of the zone arts that uh, the concept paintings that were shared between the two games. So they mm -hmm. took those concepts and were like, okay, well, let's imagine these things in a different time period same era or same location so there's a little bit there so and then i i did go and and uh, talk to the team a little bit down in because there were two different teams um and i right. talked to that team a little bit about the pipeline that we developed up in the mmo side um but yeah i can't really say i worked on the action rpg i was working on an mmo that was built in the same world mm. that actually started development beforehand um and then the studio closed before it finished um and right that was a pretty big team that was like 300 people and it was like five years of my life just gone so when that studio closed that's crazy yeah and i mean i don't really know a lot of the details about how it closed it's if you read about it it's pretty catastrophically like there was like lawsuits involved and the fbi involved it was like wild and i'm sitting here just as an artist being like oh man okay i have no idea what's going on here but this is <laughs> madness and i was like okay well whatever i work on next maybe i can make it 
something that I'm responsible for whether or not it gets shipped or it does not get shipped. <laughs> and at least it's in my own hands then. Um, yeah, you got a bit more control when you're not yeah. a cog. <laughs> right. I mean, there's something to be said for being a cog. I learned a lot there, and I've developed yeah. a lot of really strong relationships. And I that studio was actually really, uh, especially towards the end, we had a pretty good, uh, on the art side, in the environment art side, we had a pretty good process going, and we were building mm. a lot of cool stuff. So it's a shame that nobody will ever see it. But at the same time, it taught me what I needed to know to be able to go out and build tower guns and then afterwards lead a team from other gunship in 3 out of 10. Okay, so you are a director on 3 out of 10. Yes, I was the director. And... I also did the writing uh, and a little bit of the character art. Uh, most of the character arts initially, but then not the setup side. Sure. So I think pe most people would know what a director does when it comes to TV and film, but when it comes to games and animation, it's I, I'm presuming it's slightly a different task to, to sit there and kind of lead. So what does it, what did that involve for you? Well, it actually involved having some uh, co-directors who were really, really competent because even though I've developed an eye for storytelling, it is not nearly as strong as the eye of the animation director that we have on the team. Um, a guy named Pete Paquette who had worked for blue sky for a number of years and had worked for, um, uh, he actually worked for Riot and worked for Blizzard and he's done to animation all over the place. Dude's, the dude's phenomenal. Um, and he was helping us guide the the actual shot-by-shot -shot stuff. So we would direct it together and mm. I was looking at it more from a narrative perspective. Like, okay, am I achieving what I need to from the story from this? Or am I achieving what I need to from the gameplay elements when there's the different elements of gameplay that you experience? And then he would be like, from shot to shot, being like, okay, look, the blocking for this one isn't working. We need to change the camera from this. We would work together. Um, and then on the other side, I had a technical co-director, um, Chris Zukowski, who is an amazing, amazing technical artist. Um, similar to me, he came out of art and got more and more and more technical, only he has gotten really low level with the engineering side. He's like Joe times 10. Um, hmm. And uh, whenever there was a technical situation or even an art direction situation, I would lean on him. So I think that when it comes to a project that's that bridges between a couple of different mediums the smartest thing that i did was bring on people who were experts in those mediums and lean on them to have the three of us work as a trio to develop the project sure okay and so the i guess the style of this game is something that's quite unique in that you know i think you referred to it as a playable sitcom mm -hmm. what what do you think it is like it's it's kind of one of those things where it blurs the lines between art forms and I'm curious in your mind what it is that makes this different than an episodic release like I, let's just say like a telltale game if it was split into 30 minute increments where you have cutscenes, then you have gameplay and, and so on okay well the first thing that we really wanted to to strive for with three out of ten was we wanted to make it be smaller uh bursts more regular mm -hmm. smaller bursts of gameplay we wanted you to feel like you could go in and out of this thing much more like an actual sitcom. The Telltale games hmm. were awesome and the closest thing that we could look to for inspiration, but they were also longer. They took longer to make um, mm -hmm. and they were all much, much tighter in terms of the interconnection between them. Even though there is a underlying story in 3 out of 10, we want to make sure that each episode has its own unique comedic element, a lot more like an episode of Futurama or Family Guy or Archer yeah. or something like that. And uh, Well, maybe Archer connects the dots a little bit more, but... Uh, you know, you look at the traditional uh, Saturday morning cartoon, each episode is individual mm. and standalone. And we yeah. took a little bit more inspiration from that, keeping things tight, 
keeping the view time uh, um, very, very tightly controlled. We wanted each episode to be about a half an hour long. Um, and then that enabled us to scope and build a team around what it took to actually make that on a regular cadence. Um, and right now we're even proving that out more with uh, season two, which we're neck deep in the middle of right now um, uh, working on. And uh, um, it, we're basically have validated a lot of the lessons we learned while building season one. That's, that's great. And so like you mentioned before about, you know, the what's what's gone into this game is all these experiences that you've had as, as a dev uh, to kind of, you know, show a look inside those studios. Obviously, there's the comedic elements and the, the satire side of things. And there's seemingly a lot of comment about like internet culture and social media <laughs> and the expectations of, of gamers, which is pretty much endless fodder for, for material. What was it exactly that inspired you to to go down that path with the story or the setting of this game well uh i felt like there hadn't been a story done well like that now since we started working on it there's been a few things that have come out um and there had been things in the past a long long time ago but even then it had always been hollywoodified hmm. and if you look at hollywood's treatment of other professions there are a lot of things that take a look at okay a lot of people want to be game devs it's a fun profession it really is and there's a lot of, of, of truth behind the stereotypes of people shooting each other with, with uh, foam dart guns and stuff. Um, there's a lot of fun things that happen around the game dev office. And um, by and large, people want to do creative professions. Why do we have so many courtroom dramas on TV? People don't want to go be lawyers. I mean, some people do. But yet there's a lot of them on TV. And they do really well. People seem to really like these things. There's a lot of intrigue that happens in them. And there's a lot of fun things that, that, that happen in that space. Um, but nobody really aspires to go be a lawyer not nobody, but not very few people. It felt to people me don't like wanna, people mm -hmm. don't want to go to a courthouse and sit in there and watch a court case as well. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not it's, like that. It's not like that at all. It has to be uh, really heavily, you know, like, I don't know what the right word is. Dramatized, dramatized I guess. Straight streamlined. And streamlined. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, Dumbed people down. have done the same thing with game development, but in, in game development shows, but I felt like the, there was a, a certain kind of honesty that you could present in the game development that would be interested, uh, interesting. Mm. Uh, and, and I felt like you could set, really do a good satire of it. Um, and I hadn't yet seen that done in a way that felt honest to me. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of weird things in 3 out of 10. 3 out of 10 takes place in an old kind of 200-year-old uh, former, um, uh, former shovel mill, shovel foundry. Um, and this office is set into one of those old New England mills that's been divided up and it's like haunted and there's like really random stuff there's like a tentacle that lives in their fridge there's um, random you know uh, government agencies that are like watching the studio for reasons you don't know there's a lot of strange things that happen and it's heavily uh, the narrative heavily leans on some of that stuff but at the same time there's a certain amount of honesty in what's happening day to day with these developers and the troubles they face and Hmm. In some ways, it's a lot like The Office, where there's people complaining about things that are going on, or um, even the mundaneness about office life. It, we can personify and we can make fun of in a, in a unique way. And I felt like that voice I had not yet seen, in especially in um, in games, but let alone in, in games and TV, kind of as this hybrid thing. Um, it felt like yeah. it was a good place for us to write a love letter to the game industry. Why should it not be about the game industry? So we try and make fun of every genre we can in terms of the games that you play. And uh, it just seemed like a fitting narrative wrapping around the whole thing. 
Yeah, that's cool. I, I, I'm trying to think, and I can't recall any games about game dev aside from, you know, maybe there's a sprinkling of it here and there in like a quest in Watch Dogs or in GTA, or there's probably mobile games about like being a, a game dev or something, like uh, a simulator, game dev simulator. Some, or yeah, there, there is a game dev tycoon, which I haven't actually yeah. played, but there's some people on the team who love. Mm. Uh, apparently, it's a really good game. Uh, there's that's almost like a lemonade stand game. Uh, that's that's the genre, right. you know. It's like simulation, but the I call them lemonade stand games because it's basically that was the first one of that kind of genre um, that I can think of, at least. Um, but uh, I hadn't seen anything that was doing it on a story level and being like, mm. no, no, this is more about these characters, and you know, they are gamers as much as game developers, and so there's each character in the story has its own has their own kind of like thing. Uh, there's a character mm. who's super hardcore into like every violent game, and he's like almost like walking around like Wolverine. Um, there's another character who's straight, um, who's an older lady who is who started in the industry in the '90s, and she's like almost out of touch with everyone, but she's secretly a badass, and she's like the most competent person there. But she's almost discredited because she's kind of older. Um, there's the designer who's full of themselves and is got these grand visions, is completely clueless about what people actually want. Um, the tech artist who's constantly being seduced by the engineers who are all in the basement and have gone and turned into vampires for whatever reason that again silly story <laughs> stuff but um he's constantly like playing the line between whether or not he is an engineer and belongs in the basement with all the other engineers or an artist and belongs on the the normal level that everyone else is in not to say engineers aren't normal but uh, they're fun <laughs> to make fun of because they're super powerful on the game dev team so we decided to turn them into super powerful vampires <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and there's a lot of silly things like that. Yeah, it's it's a cool time that we're in, I think, where something like this can exist. And I had a really, like, wow moment last year watching Mythic Quest uh, on Apple TV Plus or whatever it's called. Um, and being a really big Always Sunny fan, that was kind of my entry into it, not even knowing it was really about games. And then seeing some of the similar things you've talked about where it's like, it, it feels like they actually... It's not like it's not a how do you do fellow kids type of perspective of of game development. It seems like they actually know a thing or two. I've and, heard and they've that. Been incorporated like streaming culture and you know patch updates and bugs and you know the kind of things that if you're into the industry and you follow it, even if you're not a dev, it's 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 what I would picture those types of studios running like. So it's cool that that can exist in a on a on a big platform. Uh, and that you know, even with Epic Game Store, you've you've got a, a chance to get something like that out there too. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I want to see Mythic Quest. I have not yet. I actually haven't let myself yet because uh, one, I heard it was good. Two, mm. uh, I didn't. It was announced and released after we had started development of this, so I didn't want to get like discouraged or sidetracked yeah. <laughs> and influenced by them. Because uh, I'm given the the quality of the the pedigree behind it, I was like, I'm sure this is going to be decent. Um, and uh, from by all accounts it actually is decent uh but i want to make sure that we kind of kept our own vision and didn't try and chase what they were doing and mm. uh, i'm glad i did because it seems like they went more for kind of making fun of a triple a environment where there's you know this is a game that, that the game that they're making is like a 200 million dollar budget game uh yeah. versus you know something like in three out of ten where you're talking about a, a company that's scraping by you're talking about the you know the small studios that yes they are occasionally they'll break out and do something that's really amazing but they're always mm. the underdogs. And I like an underdog story uh, a little bit better than I like the, this is the gigantic conglomerate, like, 
big industry player AAA company story. That doesn't mean there's not ways that you can make fun of them too, though. Um, in fact, we do that sure. a little bit in the second season. Uh, we start introducing some of the larger AAA studios in the fiction of the 3 out of 10 world. But um, I've heard good things about Mythic Quest. I really want to see it. Um, and uh, I probably will. Once uh, season two yeah. comes out, I'll take a break <laughs> and be like, okay, now let's take a look and see what other people have done. Yeah, you're right. It is more of a kind of like World of Warcraft or Fortnite style game where it's this huge audience and trying to keep people happy with updates and that kind of thing. So it's it's, it's very much in a different space than what you're working with. And obviously being animation, you can go way more zany and oh yeah we have off, off <laughs> we we try we we knew that too as like a, a main yeah. difference between we once we heard about mythic quest coming out we were like okay this is going to be something people watch and if it does poorly we're worried because that means maybe people aren't interested in this if it does well we're also worried because that means it's <laughs> uh it's done really well maybe they've done it but it seems like it's existing in its own space enough that uh it's something completely different we were like oh whew, Okay, what they're doing is not remotely like what we're doing. It's just both are set in game development worlds. And yeah. uh, there's plenty of space, I think, for this. There's plenty of space for, uh, yeah. for uh, uh, you know, if you think about a lot of the other professions out there, how many hospital dramas, how many, like we talked before about the legal dramas, we talked before about uh, yep. courtroom case type shows. There's, oh, I think there's room for multiple kinds of shows of even something yeah. like Office Life. Yeah, that's the, what I guess what I was getting at, one of the exciting things is that you can both, and I'm sure there are other things people doing this as well not just the two we're talking about but they can exist at the same time and it not being like oh somebody already did that because the gaming culture is getting so much wider and broader especially I guess with COVID and games being as popular as they ever have that it's it's reaching way more people and it's it's not just some niche thing like you know when when I guess when Big Bang Theory came out it was like a very shoehorned like this is nerd culture kind of thing that didn't necessarily like connect with everyone or or even it's the people that it's portraying <laughs> but then at the same time it, it's like um if another show tried to come out and do some kind of nerdy thing they'd be like well we already have a nerdy show it's called big bang theory and it's number one <laughs> right it's it's i think i mean it's it's kind of funny because games still have that kind of nerdy reputation but you know they passed the uh, box office 15, 20 years ago in terms of the mm. amount of revenue they bring in as the entire industry. Now, I don't know how it stands when you add in all of the other components for, for film and TV, but, I mean, if you're starting to talk about big things like television or movies or, you know, like other ways people consume uh, culture, if you will, movies, music, TV, games have been uh, a juggernaut for decades, mm. but they still have this persona of, like, nerdism that they've never been able to shake. Um and uh i don't know i mean i kind of like it because i came from that culture so uh i think it's honest but at the same time you know i yeah i'm not i don't really know where i was going with that but i guess it's like strange <laughs> to me that it is still got this attitude even though it has been mainstream i mean there's no there's more from what i understand there's more older women playing games now than there are teens um just because if you start counting in facebook and casual games it's like mm. you don't generally think of the mom as being a gamer but like that is a gigantic group of people playing games now and they're gamers um yeah i think it probably comes down to the people who are signing the checks being still of that dinosaur what we would consider the dinosaurs like that they don't quite understand it or maybe their kids are playing Fortnite and stuff but they don't really 
get into it but yeah i mean it's not anyway. honestly i think you see it go away the more as a younger generation just gets older yeah, yeah. and becomes and it fills in that role so then all of a sudden these people are green lighting things like mythic quest um yeah so yeah i think it's good i think we're only going to see more of that we certainly aren't going to see less mm. um so yeah For sure yeah. okay and and so you know that the project has come out now you've you've been able to watch people react to it mm -hmm. what's it been like uh, i guess having it come out i think you said for free on epic game store is that something where it's there's enough support from epic that it can fund a second season or is there other ways that you've had to to, to pay you know pay the bills and that kind of thing um well epic has a uh, test on a second season now so we're working right on that now um mm -hmm. the reception from people has been pretty uh I think pretty cool. It's pretty neat to see. I, I generally expect when people get stuff for free for there to be this really mixed consensus. Uh, in television, people expect something for free and they, there's no real... Uh, that doesn't really contribute to whether or not people liked it, I guess. But mm. in games, if people get something for free, they almost tend to treat it worse, critically. Whereas <laughs> if they spend $60 on it, they're like, I gotta like this. I have to like it. Um, mm. And so I was expecting there to be this mix, but it's almost been universally positive. People are like, whoa, this is kind of different and interesting. And there's occasionally people who are like, I don't get it. Why? What is this? But um, for for the vast majority of, of uh, feedback we've seen, people are like, this is really funny. This is honest. This feels like it's a presentation of the game industry that I've, uh, a couple people say they've learned some stuff, which we mm. didn't set out on this to teach people about game development. But at the same time, that's nice that it's happened. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the reception's been pretty pretty positive. We had uh, four and a half million people uh, grab the first episode, which I think wow. is a pretty respectable number. I have no idea how that compares to um, other games that have launched for free like this because uh, I don't think there's any been anything that has launched like this before. Um, so it certainly was uh, exciting to, to, to see um, and to hear that number, for example. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what people think of the second season and seeing if uh, um, that momentum kind of can build up. Yeah, that's crazy. No, like number-wise, can you see how many people have played through episodes? Um, I cannot actually because we didn't hook up that kind of stat tracking. <laughs> so I can't see right. how many people have played through <laughs> to the end of each episode. Um, yeah, for yeah. all I know, it could be four and a half million people who uh, have... Let's go know, with that. Yeah, yeah, four and a half million people have played through the whole thing. There, we'll say that. Just 100% all the way through. No, actually, I don't know. Even if it was like one in four, it's still like a million people. And that's like, I'm guessing compared to the indie games that you worked in, like that must be a pretty cool feeling to see such a, a huge audience for it. Well, you'll get that kind of audience occasionally with, with some specials with some of the platforms. You'll kind of, if they give you away your game mm -hmm. for free, you'll see a gigantic burst of a million players. But generally, yeah. if, if an indie game gets um, a million people to play it over the course of its entire life, that is considered legendary. Like there's yeah. there's a, there's a lot of them, but they are like the games you've heard of, the legendary uh, indie games or smaller yeah. games. Um, that's that's like your Hollow Knights and your Goose games and yeah, exactly. Yeah, your Hollow Knight type games, your Goose game type stuff, your uh, you know your Binding of Isaac's, um, Splunky's. Uh, actually, I don't know if Splunky's done a million units, but it probably has. Um, sure has. <laughs> over the course of its life. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're they're all the the juggernauts really, um, and you know. For for people to for me to be able to say like you know four and a half million people have have got the first episode at least because each episode was individual on the Epic Store, mm. um, that's uh, pretty uh, pretty awesome. And you know we are uh, continuing to work on the on on the world and the lore, so I'm excited just to see how we can build it because I think it's really fun. 
I know I love the project in the world, so. Yeah. Is there any temptation to develop the games that the dev team is working on? Like, you know, the endless runner that ends or whatever comes next? The end full runner, yeah. <laughs> the end, oh, yeah. the endy runner. Uh, there, there is as a gag. Um, the one I really mm. want to build is there's one game that... So there's a character named Viper who is essentially the hardcore gamer in the story and he's really gruff and he's the one i was saying before who kind of is basically wolverine, like talks yeah. like wolverine yeah uh he talks more like lego batman um okay. everyone who's a hardcore gamer talks like lego batman um <laughs> when they come by you can always tell a hardcore gamer character in three out of ten because that's how they talk but um uh he is obsessed with a game called sweaty blood and i don't say what kind of game it is i just say that there's 14 of them and he's waiting for the 14th one to come out um and uh it, it's multiple mm. episodes in season one and in season two they talk about it a little bit too and we never say what kind of game it is but i would really like to make sweaty blood someday because i think it would be really ridiculous i don't know what it would be yeah. for all i know it could be a puzzle game but it would be silly and fun that's great i'm picturing like a mortal Kombat, but it's more like wrestling <laughs> could be mortal Kombat. could be it could be a first person shooter like a like a rambo type thing where it's like really like like over the top doom slash uh rise of the triad mm. type uh, type game i don't really know it could be double dragon style like beat him up um but the character is obsessed with this game uh and uh um i think that it would be a fun thing to to make as a joke game a game within the game that's like his that's favorite cool. game ever made <laughs> i have some friends who do a podcast called bitstorm where they improvise video game concepts based on random words random word generators so i, I might <laughs> send i might send them uh sweaty blood and see what they come up with because what kind of game would you make with funny yeah i think that would be pretty yeah. uh, i was trying to think of the most ludicrously 80s game name ever that would never <laughs> actually be made and i was like mm. all right something really sweaty and bloody all right there we go <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's it yeah it, it yeah if you think of like greased up like action heroes it's, it is definitely an 80s vibe there with yeah. you know whether it's van damme stallone or <laughs> one of those guys it definitely it's a it's it's got bro force vibes yeah yeah <laughs> i love that game okay it's a good game <laughs> <laughs> speaking of van damme and stallone you never saw a hair on those chiseled chests or abs so it's a great time to talk about manscaped in this episode of putting in work it's brought to you by manscaped they got the special 8-bit offer code for all of our dear listeners you know Things can get a bit scrappy during those quarantine lockdowns, but once you're ready to leave the house, re-entering society, you want to look and feel your best. Manscaped has you covered with the very best in men's self-care, hygiene, and below-the-waist grooming. They've redesigned the electric trimmer, perfecting the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0 with a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming incidents and accidents. They've also got lotions and deodorants and all kinds of things to make you feel and smell and look just fantastic the surveys say that women prefer a clean look we know that men these days have a bit more respect for their body maybe they grew up watching these action heroes stallone and van damme with the sleek hairless bods but whatever it is you know you have to have the right gear and that's where manscaped comes in for 20 percent off and free shipping use the code 8bit at manscaped.com that's a-t-e-b-i-t what was the greatest challenge of this specific project? Was there, a, a, I guess, this is a second question that you can also refer to if it's not the answer, but was there any challenge in getting it picked up by Epic or was there an arrangement before you were working on it? Like, was the the marketing side of it a challenge? Because I imagine for a lot of indies, 
that is the thing where it's like, you know, we're going to be putting a lot of time and effort into this. Do we know that it's going to sell? Do we have the capital raised to fund it for a certain amount of time? Yeah, so that one's interesting. We did work for a long time uh, on a prototype and a first episode. Um, it was almost a year, but we were a much, much smaller group of people then. It was like four or five of us, uh, maybe maybe six. I can't remember. Uh, but for almost a full year, we were working kind of in a bubble. And then we took the project to people to see what they would think. And we were really hopeful that Epic would find it to be interesting because, one, um, we knew they were looking for something that was like interesting experiments like this that they could put on their store mm -hmm. um but then it's also a game that could really and i hate to kind of talk like a salesperson here but this is a game that you could really only build in unreal 4 um, which is epic's engine um the way that we built it leans heavily heavily on some of their core technologies and the fact that there's all these mini games mixed in and the actual thing is animated inside of unreal like we actually do the animation rigging compositing all with unreal all within unreal all in real time so mm -hmm. it's no there's no video in there um in fact, an entire episode is is smaller. You could you could run the game at 4K, and it would be you know the entire uh, and the, the entire build is tinier than a 4K video would be of it, um, much tinier. Um, it's uh, the fact that we were doing so much weird things in the engine kind of got them to. Uh, I like to think at least it made them pick pick up their ears a little bit and be like, oh, this is these guys are doing something mm -hmm. interesting. We want to get to know these people a little bit better. Um, so we're very grateful that they were supporting us and. Uh, have or that they they kind of saw that um and had uh uh we had kind of like put the pieces together that this could be some cool way to kind of show off some interesting things in the engine now i don't know if that's actually what went on in their head but i like to think that that was that was our goal and that they kind of were like yeah okay we see this um so i was very excited to to have them come on board um that was not the hardest part though the hardest part was i think ramping up because as we went from six people to 15 uh, a couple of things happened. One is that I, we realized that I was a huge bottleneck. I was writing these episodes and doing a lot of the character art and doing a lot of like the day-to-day -day direction um, and a lot, basically all the producing. Um, and we needed to hire people. So you know, we brought on a producer. It was a fantastic producer. We brought on uh, more people to help out with um, character art and with um, the actual directing side of things. Um, and uh, I, we never did really... Uh, bring down my my block the levels i was blocking people on other tasks um mm. but then right in the middle of all that that's when COVID started so it right. became like this fun <laughs> adventure of like okay now we have to deal with that plus all of these uh the lockdown stuff and and it's you know we've been in that in this now for nine months um it were gives people you a working remotely prior to that we were so that part was good but it's yeah. still you know like i myself have a uh, a young kiddo and um uh, the producer I had brought on has a young kiddo. And so all of a sudden now we didn't have childcare for them because they closed down all the childcare. Mm. So it was like, it became a huge, you know, like double bottleneck now. Cause now not only was I bottlenecking people on, um, the, just the task level. Cause, uh, people were waiting on me to get the story done, the script done, or the video files picked or something. But we were also waiting for me just to be in the office to have a meeting about whether or not uh, a scene was working. Um, sure. so it, that was a huge challenge and we got through it. We figured out some like fail safes, but, uh, uh, it was, uh, that was a stressful time. Um, mm. it's still stressful cause we're still in COVID, but, uh, we've at least figured out a little bit more about how to mitigate a lot of those things. The producer has given us a process. He worked with us to figure out exactly how long each episode takes to make like to the day. Excuse right. me. Wow. So now we have this awesome like rinse and repeat cycle where we're just like, all right, cool. We know what we're doing. 
day eight, we need this. Day 10, we need this. Day 15, we need that. Um, and uh, we, we, he essentially got us from being a bunch of skilled developers to a bunch of skilled developers who are working like clockwork now, which has mm. been cool to see. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I've, I've been working with an indie studio with uh, made up of three three people and I've just kind of I've been working on the story for for the game that they're making and I can see how um, as things get bigger than that you would really need someone whose job it is is to just kind of check up on everyone and make sure that everything's going on to a, a timeline because if you're you know focused on art or on, on the lead programming to also be like checking up on how everyone else is going could be yeah that, that could things could get out of hand pretty quickly yeah you just get spread very thin and uh yeah. it's i mean you you could probably get away with a part-time like person moonlighting as a producer if you were at three four five people but you start getting too much more than that and then you start losing sight of where you're going very mm. easily uh, if you're working in the same room you might be able to get away with more people because everyone's kind of in the same conversations at the same time but with the remote world you kind of need to be a little bit more proactive about keeping tabs and everyone keeping uh, on check with each other and making sure everyone knows that they're not stepping on each other's toes. And uh, it's amazing to see how much the rest of the world has kind of jumped our direction because we were figuring this out, uh, you know, like a year beforehand. We were kind of figuring out how to work remotely and figuring and solving a lot of the problems that then people had to solve in March. Um, and so as a result, we were like, in a, I don't want to say in a good position, but we were also, we were there to be like able to offer what we had learned to others and be like, look, no, no, this is probably what you want to use. Or maybe this source control actually works with the cloud version. Go that direction and you, your problem is not going to be as, pro as as big as, you know, setting up your own, you know, Perforce server, which you probably don't want to have to manage right now if you're two people or whatever. Um, so a lot of little logistical things that kind of add up. Um, and uh, we just had figured them out piece by piece over the course of the year prior about what would work remotely nicely and easily with hmm. um, everyone moving around all the time or being remote yeah very cool i guess that's a good segue into my next question which is what would be your advice to anyone who wants to work on a project like this or even to to get to the point where you're able to to lead this type of of game or um like creative project well these days it's easier than ever their information is out there the the technology is out there uh the biggest thing that i think like if i were talking to a younger version of myself um the biggest thing that I think I would tell myself is not to get discouraged because the technology is always changing, but the difference between me and the me of 10 years ago, like I still am always learning. So like I should never feel like I'm overwhelmed by the amount of information that's out there that there is to learn because that never ends. That is the industry that we're in. The game industry is an industry about learning. And even the people you think are experts have no idea what they're doing if they go slightly <laughs> off a path from what they already know. Because uh, the yeah. industry is big enough now that there's nobody who can be an expert in everything. The best skill you can have is just being able to learn enough, quickly enough, to get what you need to be done out of the technology that you have in front of you. Hmm. So, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, no, that's good. I think so. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, it, it's always interesting to see how people, like where people's mind goes first for, for that kind of question about advice. Because there's like obviously so many, you could get onto a technical side, you could get into the how to get a job networking side and i'm sure that when you meet you know prospective game devs or budding developers that they always have a specific question for you oh like that. yeah and i mean the answer there is completely different if it's somebody who wants to go work for say blizzard 
uh-huh. then it's like uh no practice your individual task your individual trade yeah. don't branch out don't try and learn everything <laughs> just learn everything there is in this lane and you yeah. may have a better chance of getting a job there you know uh a much better chance um but you know there are there are, if you're trying to do what what i'm doing which is pave your own way where you are trying to build something with a very small team where everyone does need to wear a lot of hats the best skill you can have is being able to learn quickly um and yeah getting good at an individual trade is very useful because it gives you kind of an anchor point. So I still think that that has a lot of value. Like I came out of the art side of things and, um, and out of tech art. Um, and that Mm. is constantly my like rally point. Like even if I don't feel comfortable with this other area, I know I can fall back on my tool belt of tools that I know from that trade to potentially solve the problem or potentially Mm. to inform other ways to address whatever problem is at hand. Sure. I think uh, for a lot of indies, finding a publisher would be a big challenge of how to get their foot in that door. So for you, I guess, going to Epic, how much of it was knowing exactly what they wanted before you went there versus, I guess, maybe knowing someone there, having uh, maybe networked up to a certain point where you could approach them and knowing who to talk to? Like, is that um, a, a big part of it as well? Uh, I mean, there was some of that in that, I mean, it did come. It didn't come out of nowhere. I'll say that it's not like a friend introduced me to Epic, and all of a sudden it was like friends of friends. Now I'm in a network. That doesn't. That isn't really how it works. Mm-hmm. Instead, you develop relationships with those who are in the same stratosphere as you, and then you all grow together. And those friendships are genuine. They're not networked relationships. They're genuine. And uh, you know, you all spread out and go different ways. And all of a sudden you realize that that person that you were hanging out with at the bar when you both were sitting there learning how to draw together is is now a producer at Epic. And you're like, oh, let's go talk to that. But that's not what happened to me. Um, in my case, I was worked on Tower of Guns a long time ago um, and had uh, built that in a technology called UDK, which was a kind of an indie version of Unreal 3. Um, and very few people made games in UDK. Um, and so... The fact that Tower of Guns was a game that actually was um, completed in it and released in it and did okay kind of opened the doors for us to have some discussions because I needed to start talking to them about more logistical, just regular clerical work, being like, hey, you know, I need to take this game that I've made in UDK and um, I'm going to start porting it for consoles now. What do we need to talk about legally in order to make that a thing? Um, And so I'd have to do day-to-day work with Epic and that started building up a relationship. And so we started building up a relationship because of the necessity of business uh and then that continued through mother gunship and that continued through three out of ten they may have never taken meetings for with me um for three out of ten i didn't know if they would but at least i had a couple of people i could be like hey can you run this to uh your team and see what they think um and this is going to sound very walled gardenish but the fact that i knew that they talked to people at various events and i could go to those events also had a fact made a factor like i could go to gdc and go meet them at when they were mm-hmm. willing to see people um made a big uh, uh was a big help um now gdc obviously didn't really exist last year um but um you know there are a lot of opportunities like that if you keep your ear to the ground that aren't as expensive as gdc epic will occasionally do events in smaller towns where they want to see people or talk to indies in that town They'll do like um, uh, Unreal reach out, like like uh, outreach events. Um, mm-hmm. Other publishers, I don't know if they'll do the same thing, but you know, if you start interacting with them on Twitter, it's a way to start. You can try cold calling. 
honestly, the best if you if you really want to partner with a publisher, which these days there's pros and cons to it, making sure that your game is something that would feel like it fits the publisher's catalog, is yeah. the first step. And now to be clear, Epic is not a publisher was not a publisher of three out of ten. Um, they were a uh, development partner, but um, the same rule applied, kind of sure. knowing what they may want and then uh, thinking hard about what we were building and if it would be a fit for them. Um, so, you know, if you want to target New Blood and uh, you're working on a very action-y first-person shooter, you may fit their catalog very well because that's the stuff they really like. They've got other games as well, but they like their action first-person shooters. Very cool. All right. Well, last question I have for you, Joe, then I'll let you get off. <laughs> it's it's New Year's Eve over <laughs> where Joe is. So, uh, you know, thanks for your time, uh, first of all. But if you could do anything and you knew that you wouldn't fail, what would you do? If I could do anything and I knew that I wouldn't fail? Oh, man, that's a good question. Because, like, that, if you say you knew you wouldn't fail, that invites kind of, like, ludicrous things, like, I would yeah. love to strap myself to a rocket and see if I survive. Well, not really. I wouldn't <laughs> want to do that. But like, like if you knew you wouldn't fail, you know, like going bungee jumping, something you're really scared of, maybe yeah. would, that introduces all that stuff. Um, no, I think that like, for me, uh, as as a creative who also runs a business, um, I feel like I'm doing a lot of that with my day to day life. I wish mm-hmm. that uh, um, I uh, could feel confident in building something that we're like gigantic and knowing knowing it was not going to fail because game dev is a very risky uh, space and knowing that it could go forward and there would be no failure in the future everybody experiences failure that's just like part of the part of the game of game development or any creative industry um and so that risk is there for the big dogs as well as you know small developers like ourselves Mm. knowing that i could go all in on uh, on a project and 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 like get a bajillions of dollars and make something big it would probably not be an MMO, I'll tell you that, but something that would be like really out there, something that nobody had ever seen, um, I think would be fun. Because I like making games that people haven't seen before. And I think that 3 out of 10 touches in on that, but there's a lot of familiar elements. So mm-hmm. maybe going even further in that direction. All right. Well, thanks, Joe. Thanks for your time and thanks for sharing the experience. Hopefully people can go and check it out if they aren't amongst those 4.5 million already. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, and yeah, if you want to find out more about the game if you go to 310.show that's the numbers 310.show then uh, you can find links to the epic page where you can pick up the game for free or links to our twitter links to our discord that sort of stuff there so thank you so much for having me on the the show i really appreciate it no worries good luck with season two thank you so much and uh take care good luck to everyone in uh, 2021 thank you for listening and thanks to audio technica and manscaped you can catch joe on social media at blank slate joe three out of ten is available free on the epic game score so check that out too if you want to support this podcast you can do so over at patreon.com slash we are eight bit that's a-t-a-b-i-t and if you don't have a few dollars to throw away of course you can leave a five-star rating and review in your podcast service of choice including apple Podcasts and podchaser you can catch me on the social medias at Jono himself. And until next episode, keep putting in work. <laughs>